Yes, yes, yes. No, no, I, I no. Marcus isn't here. Got to stop asking about this, Doug. This is a this is a different thing. Oh, oh, I guess we're recording. Uh, this is popcorn eschaton with Scott and John, or John and Scott. However, you like to flip the coin. It's a a movie podcast about movies where we talk about leftism and God and other things, and sometimes where that mixes and matches, and. I'm here, as always, with John Arminio. How you doing, pal? I'm doing great, Scott. Uh, how about yourself? I'm I'm great. I mean, you know, work working them them weekend shifts for extra money because mm. capitalism. Uh, I'm reluctant, but the bills don't pay themselves, apparently. Uh, unfortunately, not. No. <laughs> Waiting for that true. Star Trek future. Yeah, I'm looking for the to to be in a post scarcity world. Yeah. Um but what are you going to do? So we're here to discuss some some movies of, that I thought connected to each other a little bit. Um we're going to be talking about Bisbee 17, uh which is a 2018 movie directed by Robert Greens, uh that I had never seen that I wanted to see. And then we are we are also discussing a movie I have seen before called Win Stanley, which is a 1975 movie uh, directed by uh, Gerard Win. No, not by Gerard Winsley. Uh, what am I? What am I talking about? Uh, Kevin Brownlow and Andrew Motto, uh, Malo, excuse me, um, based off of a book. Yeah. Uh, what do you? How did you think about Bisbee Seventeen? You want to talk about it a little bit? Uh, yeah. So I, I, I had not seen either of these films. Um, I had heard of Win Stanley, but Bisbee Seventeen was totally new to me. Um, I thought it was, you know, very powerful. I, I thought it really captured a moment in this town's history, and you know, be, because the sort of conceit of the film is that. Um, the town of Bisbee, Arizona, the historical society, is reenacting an event a uh, hundred years previously in their history, uh, where a union strike in a copper mine was broken up by the mining company and the and local law enforcement by basically kidnapping the union workers, other families, and sometimes just various townspeople who happened to have been born outside the United States. And um, packing them into train cars at gunpoint and stranding them in the Arizona desert. Yeah, basically they, uh, the the evil corporation deputized uh, an area and yeah deported a bunch of union members and their families in 1917. And the reason why I wanted to watch this movie is I've wanted to watch this movie since I saw previews for it when it came out, but just like it was like not on many streaming platforms. It was, it was, it would occasionally be on one thing and then occasionally be on the other, but I just never had a chance and I didn't know if it was a good movie. It was just a movie that I wanted to see. So there was that, there was that. And then finally when we started doing this podcast, I was like, oh, I think this is, this is a movie that 
goes like literally well with with what we're talking about and uh it's pretty interesting because it's both a documentary and not because it's these families doing a reenactment of the deportation but it's also a story about the city and the families and the strike and you hear people who are who are ancestors of well yeah ancestors of people who strike and then ancestors of people who caused the the arrests and deportations and then you see people's morality in the gray area and how people try to bargain with themselves like that they did the right thing and it's just a it's just as an idea it's really cool because i'm obsessed with live action role playing Mm -hmm. and i think that reenactment is is obviously a type of live action role playing i don't know if civil war reenactors think that but it's like literally what it is uh so i always find larp especially performative larp as a creative expression to be really interesting and i find the idea of reenactment to be really interesting because you know if you do a Civil War reenactment, you have to be the Confederacy or the Union. And so there are people that are that are actively playing the part of the Confederacy. Or in this in this story, people actively playing deputized militia that even most people are like, oh, even, you know, given the time we live in now, that was wrong. There's like one person in the movie that that doesn't think it's wrong pretty much but most people are like hmm, this is not right yeah it's it's interesting you know in contrast to the like confederate civil war reenactors the people who reenact on the side of the the deputized townspeople are very like taken aback once they actually start participating in it and start holding their fellow townspeople at gunpoint like they 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 say you know actually being here doing this this feels wrong like Mm -hmm. right now and so even if they were on the fence beforehand actually having to herd people into train cars it's it strikes them as the wrong thing to do and I think that speaks to the power of reenactment as an art form because it, it forces you to really get up close and personal with a historical event that might have been sort of like foreign to you beforehand. Yeah. And you also sort of, it's all through the lens of a young man who's who has his own sort of relationship to the border because mm-hmm. obviously in Arizona is close to the border of Mexico so there's complicated parts of that and I don't want to go too into it because I think it's interesting in in the context of the story so, but if you if you know the the deportation of Bisbee in 1917 then this isn't much of a spoiler but you know I just found I think when you look at strikes now or or calls to get unionized if you're i don't know when you're listening to this but you know starbucks has been trying to unionize themselves a company which used to be lauded as 
a great company that gave people a lot of benefits is spending a lot of money illegally union busting. And the same thing is happening with Amazon. And hopefully, if you're listening from the future, maybe something great has happened. And people are very afraid to start unions. And this is now. Because if you if you work at an at-will state, at-will meaning that uh, your employer can fire you at-will, you can just lose your job. So even though if you fire somebody for unionizing, that's illegal, you can fire them for any other reason other, other than that. It's very telling when a company is willing to spend millions of dollars hiring lawyers to prevent unions from forming and, you know, to intimidate people from organizing. And, you know, it's even if you get fired illegally, the presence of those union busting activities and those lawyers, you know, what are you going to do? Sue Amazon by yourself? Sue Starbucks? It, it, it creates a no-win situation for a lot of these employees who are, you know, desperate for somebody to be their voice. Mm-hmm. And we don't we forget that there was a time where striking and unionizing, you could die. You could get your you could get the shit beaten out of you. They could drop you off in Mexico. You know what I'm saying? And under threats of violence and in I would it's it's certainly suggested in other places where I'm even afraid to go too into detail, even though how many people are really listening to our our humble podcast? Hopefully a few. Thank you, listeners. Thank you. You know, you hear about country places in certain countries trying to unionize, and then all of a sudden the leader just disappears or someone disappears. It's still happening. Companies are not your friend. Even if you like certain companies, even if you like certain things, they are not your friends. You know, I love comic books, but, you know, Marvel is is one of the largest, is part of one of the largest conglomerates in the world. Even if they tell underdog stories, they're not my friend. Our bosses are not our friends. And it's, it's saddening to think that there are people that would still defend the business over the over people that they love, or this weird idea when you see people defend famous people when famous people fuck up. The same kind of people that won't defend their cousin when they're having a hard time are like going to going to going to bat for a multimillionaire who doesn't care about you. Yeah, it, it is weird. The there really is like a cult of the corporation in America and especially with, uh, with how Bisbee sort of illustrates that with mining companies like there's people who are desperately clinging to the idea that the mining companies are going to come back to Bisbee Arizona and save the town um, and there's this similar sort of fetishization of like coal mining in Appalachia where it's seen as this you know, incredibly dignified and noble profession when it's been, like, taking away people's rights and shortening their lives and destroying the environment for, you know, over a century. Um, but in Bisbee, you know, uh, one of the residents says that it 
was once the richest town in Arizona, and now it's literally the poorest because the mining company abandoned the town. Um, and there's certain portions of the population that are refusing to let go of this decades-old illusion that the mining company is going to provide for them. And we're just lucky that we don't... I mean, in a way, this isn't true, but we don't live in a world anymore where we get paid with company cash. Yeah. You know, you ever heard that song like, Oh, I'm not to the company store. Mm. I'm not singing that well, so I'm not singing that so great. But like, you know, a lot of these companies used to have you. You know, you lived in a company town. There'd be company buildings, company stores, company money. This is one of the reasons we have money, amongst other things. Um, and you, you see, and this is going to happen more and more. You know, this started in 1917, but we're, we're in the 2020s, and as the need for things change, like the need for coal, the need for energy, the need for gas, the need for all these types of goods, as the world gets more robotized, there's going to be less regular jobs and and they're not going to we're going to be shit out of luck man yeah the the need for human labor is going to go down but you know i as i i name dropped the star trek feature at the beginning of the episode um that that should be like a good thing right like people won't have to go down a mine to feed their family anymore people won't have to be in a factory and do the same motion for 12 hours a day. People don't have to, like, package Amazon shipments while they pee in bottles. Like, that's good, right? Like, we should be happy that technology is freeing us from having to do these, you know, unfulfilling jobs for minimum wage. But to go along with that, it requires something like a universal basic income, to supplement those those lost jobs um but there's certainly economic uh economists talking about that uh, economists <laughs> talking about that but as it's very far from a political reality in in most countries well absolutely and or if we just had you know i i do believe in a form of universal basic income i mean i think UBI is flawed, but is but is in in the right direction. Yeah. When I was in social work school, I actually met Andrew Yang. He he did a talk at our school, and he was talking about UBI, and yeah, like Andrew Yang, whose politics are really unimpressive to me. I, I think he's, I think. I, I don't think you can have it both ways. And I think being a mostly center person, you don't realize that one, the center is pretty right. Yeah. Two, um, if you don't believe in much, then, then why would I even trust you? So I find him to be, he's, you know, I don't think I would vote for him so easily. However, a very rich person explaining why universal basic income is good 
and why it doesn't mean that it'll make things more expensive or people will be lazy is good. Yeah, agreed. And this is this is the thing like Bisbee 17 as a movie, it was fine. It wasn't it wasn't great. It was like a 3 out of 5, mm-hmm. I think, maybe 3.5, but it's not a not a four-star movie, not a movie I'm going to remember forever because of the movie aspect I'm going to remember parts of it and I am and again I'm I'm soft to anything larpish but I like it that it has us talking about strikes and labor movements and and the the violence of companies and to 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 beware you know uh you, you know Sorry. Yeah, please. Uh, one of the things that I, I found interesting, you, you know, the the personalities of some of these reenactors, I just found some of the more engaging parts of the film. Like at the beginning, there's this woman created an audiobook project, and she calls Bisbee the town too loved to die. And I just thought, like, that was such an interesting contrast to everything that we see in the movie. Like, there's a lot of shame in in the town um a lot of people who don't know what to make of it a, a lot of people like forced forgetting of of what happened but you know uh, what another resident said a mining town without a mine is what's usually referred to as a ghost town so, yep. so what is keeping bisbee alive it's it's kind of strange to me and so the idea that people love it there um you know it doesn't make sense but that's also like a very american idea like this this combination the simultaneous love and hate for for the place that you were raised or or where you live it it was just very very compelling to me that idea yeah and let me tell you someone that grew up in new york city no matter where you're from there's a love it and hate it vibe about where you live. Yeah. And something, you know, to, to remind people, like, uh, I'm assuming you've seen Roger and me. Uh, no, I actually have not seen Roger and me. You've never seen Roger and me? No. Uh, you know, so Roger and me is the, the movie that made director Michael Moore famous, mm-hmm. where... He looks at basically the impact that a General Motors uh, factory leaving a town does. And as you'll see, as we see, it, it destroys a town. And when these, when these cities of industry, the industry changes or are taken to other places where labor is cheaper, and this isn't going to be a screed about Oh, buy American or, or like these countries are trying to take away our jobs because that's that's a false binary. Yeah. People want to work wherever we are, and and all work is valid. There is no such thing as unskilled labor. And if you're listening and you disagree, I just I think you're wrong. Absolutely. And. Roger and me is just a really, 
I, I think it was a good movie. I haven't seen it in probably 20 years, you know, but, and I have a lot of, I have a lot of trouble with Michael Moore, even though I think like he's on my side, you know, yeah. I I think. Yeah, even but, because, you know, even when, when I saw Bullying for Columbine, even though like I agree with the thesis of the film, it still left a very like bitter taste in my mouth. Because I, I was pro- I was like a freshman in college when that came out, but even at that young young age, I was like, "This is very manipulative what you're doing right now." That movie really frustrated me because I sort of feel like, like, dude, I know that you're you're way more on my side than you're not. You're you're if anything my opponent, but you're not my enemy, and you're probably not even an opponent, but. Like, let's just work with the with the realities. Yeah. We don't have to make things up. There, you don't have to make up boogeyman's. Like, you can look into this is this is a tangent, big surprise. You can look into real real instances where America allowed or funded or gave power to overthrow countries. This is not. That's not a that's not a conspiracy theory. Yeah. That's not like, oh, the Dallas airport or whatever airport is like some secret Masonic site. It's not it's not that. It's like literally um the biggest countries that you know have been involved in shadow wars for a very long time, overthrow governments. Um again, I, I wanna try to make this this show timeless, so I don't wanna just talk about specific things, but if you just if you just look it up, like the U.S. does it, it's not, it's not, it's not a conspiracy. It's real, and um, the story that, that Michael Moore was telling in that movie, just like tell the story. When you when he went to the bank where where opening up a bank account came with a gun, he made it appear that he got the gun on the spot. Yeah. But actually, he got the gun four days later, but he but he wore the same clothes. And I feel like if you just said, I opened up I opened up a bank account and then four days later I got a gun, I think that paints a equally interesting picture. And I'm not completely prepared to talk about my stances on guns today. I think I, I we should do that. With a little more preparation. Mm. Yeah, but it is but, a really interesting idea that an essential, you know, asset for American life is a bank account. And therefore, another, the thesis for, for that bank is that also an essential asset for living as American is a gun. Like the, the right. equating of those two things, I think, is like is something interesting maybe we need to examine. Uh, but in, in, instead, it was sort of... Um, misrepresented certainly right he's very manipulative so even though you know he's he's done movies about things that are really important to shine lights Mm -hmm. on it's also example of how capitalism runs you know like capitalist companies are willing to i'm sure i've said this before they're willing to make movies by michael moore knowing that he's going to make fun of them because they make money 
his movies are popular. You know, Sicko showed a point of view about the healthcare system that people hadn't considered. My mom was like, really? Like, was very surprised that there are places where you don't pay for medicine and this assumption that places with universal health care suck is is a misnomer. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I feel like I'm talking a lot today. It's all right. You got a lot of intelligent things to say. But yeah, Michael Moore, he also made a movie called The Big One where he tries to get Philip Knight, the guy who owns Nike, to open up some shoe factories in America, you know? Mm-hmm. So, again, like, the, the world is changing, and I really, I'm not saying any, I'm not trying to say anything bad about globalization. I think globalize, I think the world, being involved with the world is a, is a great thing. But these companies, their bottom line is money, so if these towns or these businesses aren't profitable, they're going to go where they are, where they are profitable. Yeah, exactly. And I just thought, yeah, I just thought the movie did a good job of of showing the turmoil. But what did you think of the movie? Yeah, um, I'm I'm pretty much in uh, exact agreement with you, Scott. Like I thought it brought up a lot of. You know, really engaging, uh, fascinating topics. Um, Examine the culture of this town. Like cinematically, it's not outstanding, but I'm really happy um, that I saw it. Um, it, it, I also like that it made room for smaller observations, like the fact that you know the IWW union had a lot of songs. Mm-hmm. You know, used glory, glory, hallelujah in, in various contexts. Uh, you know, the Battle of the Republic, whereas these, um, you know, capitalist mining corpor- corporation owners, uh, they didn't write any songs. So um, it was just a, a contrast in psychological profiles I, by pointing that out, which I thought was interesting. And I also really liked on, on, the, um, on the LARPing tip um, the contrast of Tombstone, Arizona, which is just like 30 miles away, to Bisbee. So, you know, Tombstone is this, you know, like tourist mecca, basically, in, in Arizona, where people do very antiquated Wild West show antics, uh, you know, for tourism. And it's a complete fiction about what happened uh, during Arizona in the 19th century. Whereas in Bisbee, they're trying to tell the, as close to the truth as, as they can, you know, and maybe even trying to discover something about the history of the, of the town instead of just profiting off of it, like what Tombstone is doing. And for, for those who might not know, how would you describe Tombstone? Aside from the 1993 movie that was kind of awesome when I was a kid. Um, like the, the, the town as it currently stands. Sure. Yeah. I mean, mean, it's like old West Disneyland, basically. Um, a a lot of carnival barkers going on, uh, tourists buying overpriced knickknacks, paying for old wild West shows, that kind of thing. Um, I've never, I've never been there. So, so basically 
in Tombstone, Arizona, there was that there were a bunch there was the gunfights, right? Yeah. Yeah, with you know, it's where and wider the became okay corral. Legend. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then of course there was the Alamo. Never forget the yeah. Alamo. D- different different decade, much earlier. Yeah, no, I was just yeah. being okay. silly. Um but yeah, it's really interesting that there are these certain places that sell the past. I think also because like tomb, the Tombstone story is able to sort of not have to confront the racism mm-hmm. of, I mean, I'm sure that there's anti-Native Americans. So that's, I'm sure there's anti-Native American racism. Um but I, I'm pretty sure Tombstone is just white on white, whites, white cowboys shooting each other. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. Uh, white Earp was, you know, a, a notorious sort of rough character, and at this point in his life, after a, uh, a career of gambling and thieving, he was a sheriff um, or a marshal. I can't remember, but um, anyway. A lawman. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you have dudes like that in charge of law and order, uh, people get murdered. Uh, hasn't changed. Well, you know what the term cop stands for, right? No, I do not. <laughs> Constable on patrol. Oh, really? Interesting. Yes. So... You know, again, we can talk about policing another day because it's a very rich conversation. Mm. Um, and I want to talk about unions and communism today. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's what we're here for. Right. But, yeah, so there's, like, constables. like So, so like, policing in, in America comes from slavery mm-hmm. so that part you know uh, but yeah I think I think it's a, a interesting the movie's an opportunity to learn more about our past yeah. and explains why this is, is a good reason why this current idea of of the the you know, people use the term critical race theory, mm-hmm. but nobody really knows what that means. It's a it's a code to basically talk about any inconvenient truth. Yeah. Uh, pun unintended. But by talking about the past, I just think it's important. Yeah, and I mean the the town society that was putting on the reenactment. You know, they. After doing their research on on what was happening, they described the nineteen seventeen deportation as an ethnic cleansing. You know, it, it was the the white establishment removing Mexicans and Eastern Europeans from their town at gunpoint. Um, you know, America for Americans, even in nineteen seventeen. So, and this yeah. is why this is why education works. Yeah. Well. Let's talk about the the next movie. I had a question, but it can wait. Okay. Um, so, Win Stanley is a black and white movie. 
um, from 1975. Oh, um, you can watch Bisbee 17 on Canopy. And Canopy is a streaming service that has a lot of independent film. It's just really great. And it's free. You just have to have a library card. Support your and library. Built. And libraries are awesome. And I love Canopy's wonderful. A lot of it's really interesting that a lot of the movies we end up looking for on this show are on Tubi and Canopy. Yeah, it's um Yeah, it's kind of uh heartening that these kind of independent films can have a platform where they can exist. Yeah, and though I do worry that certain people won't go further than the easy things they have, like it's even hard to get. I have trouble sometimes getting my friends who love Criterion Collection to see movies that aren't on the Criterion Collection. That's silly. Of course it's silly. Um you know, people sometimes fall into clicks even though like Criterion Collection also put out Armageddon, you know? Like they're not they're not perfect. Yeah, definitely not. There's a Criterion Collection version of The Rock. So I just just cuz something is Criterion doesn't mean it's the the be all end all when it comes to independent movies. Yeah, and you know, I've I know I I mentioned the um the All Our Haunts Be Ours uh folk horror box set put out by Severn last year. Yeah. Um, but you know, as far as like curation and film preservation from a multitude of various voices, like that's a beautiful example. It's like independent filmmakers from Czechoslovakia or, or, or Russia that, you know, most Americans have never heard of and that we would never have an opportunity to see if it wasn't for a company like Severin loving these films and putting care into their preservation and getting quality, you know, film scholars to talk about them and to do some really great essays on them and, and interviews. So, yeah, there's people who love film outside of Criterion. As great a work as Criterion does, um, there's just so much stuff out there. Yeah, I mean, Kino Lorber also yeah. does really wonderful things. Arrow, and, for sure. Uh, yeah, and I, I know that there's a couple um, outfits that do martial arts movies, I don't, but I don't know them so well. Even, this should be no surprise, even A24 has been trying to make has really trying to been giving Criterion a run for their money. But I still find them to be very pretentious. Yeah. And it's... Even though Criterion is pretentious, but you're saying... Just that, you know, it's cool when a movie you love is going to get the Criterion treatment, but it also means that if you want a piece of physical media, it's going to be like 40 bucks. Unless, unless you wait for the Criterion sale, like their their stuff is. Expensive. I mean, every yeah, everyone I know has has alarms alerts for when Barnes and Noble and other places do the the big Criterion sales. Yeah, they do they do them all the time where you get a good deal, but yeah, it's expensive, and then it becomes classes because it's hard to get them and. 
if you really like the cool stuff that comes with getting a nice piece of media, like you want more than the movie, let's say you want to watch some behind the scenes or sometimes they'll make documentaries along with the movie, you know, you, it's nice yeah. to have that. And not everyone can afford, you know, $40, um, you know, but I'm going on a no, tangent. I, I mean, I totally agree because I, I love commentaries. I love behind the scenes information. I'm, I'm fascinated by the history of film. You know, I'm, I'm doing all these movie podcasts because I love movies so much. And so I, um, I'm ravenous for, for, for this kind of material. Uh, and, and it's great when a movie is beautifully preserved, but it's also frustrating when um, the Senegalese uh, filmmaker Semben, he, um, he talked about in an interview how uh, cinema is the most democratic of art forms. So even if he has a very political and intellectual message, you know, he's a very um, pointedly communist filmmaker, he makes movies because it's the most democratic art form, and that's the way to democratize his message. So if important, quote-unquote, important films become elitist, that really cuts one of the greatest um, attributes cinema has at its knees. So we, we have to balance like artful film preservation with the democratic nature of the form itself. Absolutely. You ever saw a laser disc? You ever seen a movie on laser disc? Um, once one of my teachers in elementary school brought a movie in on laser disc and showed it to the class, but I don't even remember what it was. You know, laser disc was way ahead of its time. There are still people that say that before Blu-ray, laser disc was the standard incredible way to watch cinema they were these gigantic like albums like records record sized cds basically and you put them in the in the very expensive laser disc player and it played movies at a really high resolution uh better than dvds better better than regular dvds and it was a laser disc was the first time i saw like oh bonus scenes behind the scenes stuff i just i was like whoa that's amazing so i do i do love all that stuff because when you're really obsessed with a movie you just want to learn yeah. more and get more enthralled in it take take a dance with it but win stanley is a 1975 movie it's british it's a it's about uh Gerard Winstanley, it's about basically a guy who tries to make uh, tries to make a, a paradise, a utopian neighborhood, you know, in the 17th yeah. century. I'm not doing this this duty. Also, two sure. things, John. Where 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 can you find Winstanley? You can Stanley? find Winstanley for free in a variety of formats on the Internet Archive. It's great. Yeah. Fantastic. So, and how would you describe Win um, Stanley? Yeah, Win Stanley is a real fascinating project. Uh, it's about 
a very tumultuous time in English history during the English Civil War. Um, right after King Charles I was executed, there was this, and this group formed a little bit before his execution in 1649, but the, the levelers, there were people who wanted the common land of England to be open to farming. So at this time in English history, common land was land reserved for cattle to graze on, and anybody's cattle could graze on it. But if you were too poor to have cattle, it meant there was just these thousands upon thousands of acres that you had, that it was, you know, of no use to you. So Gerard Wynne Stanley and his group wanted to, you know, uh, distribute equally some of this land so that people who were poor could actually make a living off of it. Um, and, you know, there are various groups of levelers, sort of colloquial known as diggers, throughout England, but um, Drodwood Stanley was the most sort of eloquent in the way he wrote about and, and led this movement. And how would you describe the movie? Um, you know, the movie is um, made by Kevin Brownlow and Andrew Mallow. So they were responsible for making a movie from um, eight years before this called It Happened Here, which is like a, a fictional what-if tale of Germany invading England during World War II. Um, but they are, you know very uniquely independent filmmakers they you know filmed this on the weekends they got people to work for free uh it, it took them several years to film this getting non-professional actors it's it's sort of like about as bare bones and independent as you can imagine a film being um and mm -hmm. I, I did see an interview with kevin Brownlow talking about how when hiring these sort of non-professional actors that what he looks for is conviction so that even if the way they read their lines is amateurish and non-professional if they can do it with conviction it's better than getting a professional actor and obviously like reading conviction on screen is a pretty subjective quality but I think they really achieved that with the cast and the array of faces that they assembled for this film. And might I say, the film is mm -hmm. gorgeous. It's so nice to watch. It's black and white in a way that really helps its story. The performances are moving and... Uh, yeah, I'd say this this movie m works for me more so than Bisbee 17. This this is more like a four-star movie for me. What did you think of yeah, it? Yeah, I I really loved it. Um it yeah, it does look gorgeous. There are some just incredibly cinematic moments um you know when Gerard Wood Stanley is confronting this guy Parson Platt in the near the beginning of the movie they're just like at this crossroads as the wind is just blasting across the english countryside it's just absolutely gorgeous you know it, it's straight it imagery straight from a horror film 
um, but it's it's just so compelling to watch. And you know the the guy playing Win Stanley is uh, Miles Hallowell. Uh, I think he has just the perfect voice and demeanor for what this film is trying to do. In real life, he was a teacher, uh, and so the filmmakers hired him because he was sort of used to like being in front of a bunch of people and talking. So there's certainly no stage fright there. Um, he has such like a sympathetic face that you're just like on his side from beginning to end. Um, the economic theories are, are presented so matter-of-factly and easy to understand. Um, the the injustice of the English justice system is, is, you know, so plain and apparent how it's, you know, engineered to take advantage of the poor even after this, you know, revolution where they got rid of the king. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, it is it is sort of amazing what this crew of people was able to do with the limited resources they had. And I think it speaks to the passion uh, that everybody had, you know, willing to um, take time away from their families to do this work for, for free. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, you, you think about it like you have to really care about something if you were just like, I'm going to give you my weekends for two years. Could you imagine? Yeah, you, you better you better really love that thing pretty hard. You hear about people who just make pieces of art on their weekends. I mean, at this point, I, I, I mean, I consider myself a professional musician, but I really only get to make art on the weekends. So it's very impressive what people are able to do, especially this movie and, and telling such an important story of like, hey, like this whole like trying to to create a community that governs itself and takes care of itself and looks out for each other. Like this has been going on. This is not a brand new thing. I do think that people assume that we just want to be capitalistic, but I think left to devices people are like oh it makes more sense to share and and be communal yeah and it doesn't mean you can't have stuff it doesn't mean all these stupid things that people think it is but you know it was just it was just nice to see even though you know the movie goes the way it goes uh, you were saying that the it's based off of a book yeah, on the book Comrade Jacob by David Kaut, C-A-U-T-E. Um, and, you know, he did write a piece uh, for The Guardian several years ago about how he was disappointed in the movie. Um, because for him, he thinks that this film sort of um, de-emphasizes the religious aspect of Win Stanley's mission, which I, I, I disagree with that, but... Yeah, yeah, completely. But in his book, um, Win Stanley goes through fits of religious ecstasy, uh, the kind that like you would see a biblical biblical prophet go into, um, and so the filmmakers sort of excise that aspect of his personality out to make it more palatable for you know mid twentieth century leftism. Um, 
And so I could definitely see the author's, you know, chagrin at at that sort of omission. But also, I don't think that those sort of scenes would have fit in with this movie at all. And it would have required a level of acting that would have been unfair to ask professional actors to, to participate in. Yeah, and I also think that it still comes off as a yeah, religious film. So I don't see that. And yeah, I, 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 I think the ecstasy would have taken away from the story. How do you view it as a, as a religious spiritual film? I think really smartly is, is they have Win Stanley's book function as, Win Stanley's own book, as the narration uh, for the film. And so, you know, he, he has, you know, short little monologues like the gentry strive for land, the clergy strive for land, the common people strive for land, and buying and selling is an art whereby people endeavor to cheat one another of the land. Set the oppressed free and come in and honor Christ, who is the restoring power, and you shall find rest. So, you know, there's Win Stanley using religious philosophy to justify his economic arguments. And that, that certainly speaks to, to me. That certainly speaks to what we're doing with this podcast. Um, but that Absolutely. definitely comes across as his primary motivator, or at least one of his primary motivators, for you know, participating in this mission, for giving up his whole life to helping poor people feed themselves and and i think that's you know incredibly compelling and also that he has a huge conflict with the the parson who's the guy in charge of the local church so he's having he's taking a stand against the religious establishment and you know england very famously separated itself from the centralized catholic church you know, in the, in the previous century, and now here again, um, centralized religious authority is taking away the freedoms of, you know, common people. So you know, where the English authority kicked out the king and established a military di- dictatorship, they kicked out the pope and they established a a dictatorship of, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury. So functionally, for the people that when Stanley is leading, their lives are not changed despite what they were promised. Yeah. Sorry, that just upset me, but that's okay. I'm sorry. It's not your fault. Um, it's, it's, it's this whole thing that we're discussing that we're trying to get people to think about upsets me. I just, I just wish that, you know, we joke about Star Trek, but I just wish we lived in a post scarcity world. And I don't even think that we are, there's minor changes we could do that would, that would give people enough to eat and a place to stay. It's not some, it's not some, scatterbrained thing it's totally possible um before we close out on this chapter 
Ha- have you any thoughts and things you'd like to, um, to talk yeah, I about? I just want to say a little bit about the General Fa- Fairfax character in, in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, he was played by Jerome Willis, who was the only professional actor uh, on on Win Stanley. And so this is a guy who, like, he was a TV star in the 70s. Um, so it, it's kind of like, you know, imagine John Hamm. Like just showing up in in this movie, so like he he t- he did this for free because he believed in the filmmakers and and what they were trying to do. Um, and as a historical figure, General Fairfax was very interesting because he was the sort of commander in chief of the parliamentary forces, um, but was much less militant than they wanted him to be, much less violent than they wanted him to be. Um, Parliament asked him to invade Scotland and then invade Ireland. He refused both times, and that's and then Oliver Cromwell gladly took up the torch to crush the Catholics. Um, and so I think his portrayal as somebody capable of empathy for the levelers and someone the levelers had great respect for, I think, is true to history. And I think it, it's... I think it speaks a lot to the power of empathy that somebody as, you know, high-born and grandiose General Fairfax can manage to connect with some of the poorest of the poor by just, you know, walking amongst them. Um, he certainly doesn't do all he could to help them, um, but I think it means a lot. It meant a lot to the levelers to have somebody like General Fairfax, willing to listen to what they had to say. And he also was very critical of the hypocrisy of people like Cromwell and the Parliament establishing a military dictatorship after he just fought to dethrone the king. You couldn't have said it better myself. And I have some... We I know we have a special episode lined up but I also know that we're going to have to discuss Free State of Jones sooner or later yeah I think that that's an extremely interesting movie Uh, not a perfect movie but um, it's one that I was able to see in theaters and has stayed with me since I I saw it All right. well you have any uh, closing remarks my friend Um, just that uh, thank you for introducing me to these films and um, having this conversation with me, Scott. I really appreciate it. Likewise.